going to read six verses of Scripture in the book of 1 John chapter 1. If you'll stand with me all over the room. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, and we will be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. The Word said, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I want to preach to you for a few moments this morning a message just very, very simply titled, Walking in the Light walking in the light. If you will, one more time, just bow your heads with me, pray with me and for me. Father, one more time this morning, we tell you how awesome you are in this place. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for blessing us this morning with your spirit and your anointing in this house. We thank you, Lord, for blessing the tithe and the offering that we've lifted to you. And God, now comes the time that we open your word. We break the bread of life. And God, we trust upon you to feed us and speak to us today. God, I ask you that you would anoint every ear to hear your word and every heart to receive your word. And God, even if we don't maybe shout and have uh, outward spiritual manifestations this morning as a result of the word, I pray that more than anything, that it would dig deep into the very fiber of our being and it would stir us up and it would motivate us and it would direct us towards your light in all things in our lives. We give you the glory, the honor, and the praise for what you're going to do in and through your word in advance today. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. And everybody said, amen. You may be seated in the Lord's presence today. Lauren, I'm going to be going back to that scripture. Uh, If you have a different translation, it's fine. Use what you've got there. I'm going to be going back and forth, and I'll call out those verses for you uh, before I get there. But this morning, as we look at at the Word, I want to first of all ask you, have you ever directly stared at the sun? How many has done that before? That's one of those strange things that your mother warned you not to do when you were little, and yet drawn by curiosity or maybe just direct disobedience, but possibly also even through innocence, at some time, at some point in our lives, most of us have stared into the sun. And do you remember what happened when, when you gave that giant ball of gases just a momentary glance and stare? Immediately, if you didn't have sunglasses on, your eyes will begin to burn, possibly even water. And you were compelled quickly to turn your face the other way. And then when you turn your face away from the sun, uh, 
and you're looking at what's around you, your eyes will have just a little bit of trouble and take just a, just a moment to refocus. And you experience this brief period of blackness, maybe even a temporary eclipse, so to speak, in which you see all the darkness around you before everything begins to come back into focus. Well, in our text today, the Apostle John intends to provide for us a similar sort of experience. In 1 John 1 and 5 through 10, he sets before us the vision of God as being absolute light, a light far greater and purer than the sun. And in so doing, he wants his readers, that's you and I this morning, to experience and to recognize the blackness that is all around us, but also within us, the blackness of sin and this great darkness that is only exposed, it can only be seen once we have gazed intently into the perfect light of God. Uh, in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, now this is a book that I'm not endorsing that you read because it was written to try to bring the Church of England and the Church of Scotland into focus together and into unity. And a catechism is a writing that's written in question and answer format so that the reader can read what you might think of as the frequently asked questions and then get an immediate answer. But there are some truths that are found in this book and I found this as I was studying yesterday morning and I thought it was interesting. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which one of the first questions that is asked is what is God? Then the answer is given. It says God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being in His wisdom, in His power, in His holiness, which they've sung about this morning, in His justice, in His goodness, and in His truth. Now that is a good answer. It is certainly better than the answer that we might expect to get on the street corner or at the coffee shop. Because in the day and the world in which we live, now a standard assessment of God makes Him into the image of us. Can I tell you this morning that God is not a reflection of the image of us. We were created in His image. Somebody say amen. But today you hear people say, I would like to think of God as, and then you fill in the blank. How many's heard that? That's the way many people talk about it today. But the answer that is given in the Westminster Shorter catechism is not entirely wrong but it is incomplete because it only indirectly answers the question and perhaps it does this to guard the unsearchable greatness of God but the apostle John however pulls down all the guards and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit he directly answers this question what is God John hits the mark straight on. He writes in verse 5, if you'll put it back on the screen, he said, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He said, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Do you know that the Greek church has long called the Apostle John the theologian? He earned this title because of his ability to bring clear definition to difficult concepts. And here in verse 5, using language that even a child can understand, John summarizes God as being absolute light. Now John is not saying anything new here. 
He's simply borrowing from the language and the imagery of Scripture. Because if you study the word very much, you'll find that throughout the Old Testament, we find light in some form, excuse me, in some form or another as being a depiction of God. In Exodus, for example, God reveals himself to Moses in what? The burning bush. And to Israel in a cloud of fire that lights their way. And then at the end of Exodus, when the tabernacle is erected, God's presence is signified again with a fire present in the golden lampstands. The book of Psalms also makes use of this same imagery. David writes in Psalm 27 and 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. And in Psalms 104 and 1 we read, You are clothed with splendor and majesty. He wraps himself in light as with a garment. The Old Testament imagery is also used in the New Testament when it's referring to Jesus. For not only is Jesus coming described as a, quote, light of revelation, if you remember what Simeon said of him, but also Jesus says of himself in John chapter 8 and verse 12, I am the light of the world. And then Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6 concerning our resurrected and now exalted Lord saying, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. That's what Paul said. And now interestingly, while John certainly knows and believes Jesus to be the light, because John uses this term of Jesus as the light over 40 times in his gospel alone. Not counting the other three Gospels, John uses it over 40 times in his Gospel alone. And here in 1 John, he focuses on God the Father. In fact, it is Jesus, he tells us, who has given John and the apostles, who were those first eyewitnesses of Jesus, this very message to announce. Look at the very beginning of verse 5 that's on the screen. It reads, this is the message we have heard from him, from who? From Jesus, and proclaim to you. Now, at first, I thought this expression, God is light, was just this very vague way, if you will, to summarize Jesus' message of everything that he taught while he was here on earth. But the more I looked into it, the more it made sense. Because the message that God is light is in fact a wonderful summary of the gospel or at least a starting point of the gospel. You see, here's the message. What did he say? This is the message. Here's the message, and that's going to become more clear as we move on in our passage this morning, that God is light. That is, he is holy and pure and perfect. Man is not the light. Somebody say amen. That is he or she is sinful. Thus, sinful man needs a sinless Savior. Hallelujah. So God is light. That's where the gospel starts. That is the very foundation of Christ's teaching. In 1 John 4 and 16, John writes those famous words. Words that have been inducted to the bumper sticker hall of fame. Words that you hear uh, that you hear the world talk about today. Anytime that we read anything about judgment from the word of God. Anytime that we define right from wrong. Those famous words that everybody knows and you can quote them together. They all want to say, God is love. Right? I'm about to preach in here this morning. 
You know it's interesting to note how many of our evangelistic presentations today start with this definition of God is love rather than the one giving in 1 John 1 and 5 that God is light. But I think that the apostolic order in the word of God is significant because I think it matters that light comes before his love. That is, I think that it is necessary that we first recognize God's mutant moral purity, his absolute goodness, and therefore we realize our impurities and our innate badness before we come to see this love that the Bible speaks of that he so loved the world with that he gave his only son. What are you talking about, Pastor? I'm saying it doesn't matter how much you say and quote that God is love until you see God in the form of light that it shines upon you and reveals your darkness. You don't even know what it is to experience the love of God you've got to see God in light before you can even recognize his love it is when we view God as light that he reveals himself to us in perfect purity and then we come to see the blackness of sin and with this a recognition of our need for forgiveness and cleansing we all have a need for forgiveness and cleansing So that's verse 5, the revelation that God is light. And then in verses 6 through 10, we have what is to be our self-evaluation in light of this light. Because in what follows in verse 6 through 10, John systematically shows what it means to walk in the light and to not walk in the light. Now thankfully, John made his first epistle quite preacher-friendly. He has nicely divided the second section, verses 6 through 10, into three clear parts. Did you notice the phrase, I know it wasn't all on the screen when I read it initially, but the phrase that's repeated three times in our text today, in verse 6, again in verse 8, and in verse 10, it says, if we say, just stop right there for a minute. Of all the New Testament writers, John's the most ordered and he's the most poetic. And first with this phrase, if we say, and then what immediately follows, he introduces some aspect of false teaching or false thinking within the church. And then he follows this with a denial or a contradiction of this teaching or this thought. And then finally, he refutes it and he provides correction. So I want you to look with me at verses 6 and 7 and let me show you how this works and comes together. Here's what he said. He said, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. So that's the claim as well as John's denial of it. And here's the correction in verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses who? Us from all sin. God's word right here teaches us That just as the right emotions toward God and about the things of God are necessary, so too are the right emotions toward each other and to our godly behavior. In Romans, 
Paul clearly uh, calls this reality. He says the obedience of faith. And here in 1 John it's labeled walking in the light. John teaches that we cannot claim to have fellowship with God and still continue to walk, that is to habitually live in darkness, in disobedience. You cannot say that you are walking in the light and yet living in sin. You cannot say that you are walking in the light but then you don't follow the teachings and the preachings and the precepts of the word of God you cannot say you are walking in the light and you love God but you don't love your fellow man oh I'm about to preach something to you this morning I said I'm about to preach something to you this morning we've come to the place in the church in the church world as a whole we want to think that we can have our picks we want to think that we can choose certain things and we even want to think that we can take certain parts out of the word of God and we can apply them we can worship, we can shout to them, we can talk in tongues, we might even dance in, the, in what we call in the spirit, but we're leaving part of it out. And I want to tell you it's the whole word of God, rightly divided. You cannot leave it out. You cannot leave it out. And if we say that we are walking in the light, but yet we habitually make a choice to walk in darkness, he tells us, in other words, we're not to be, I come up with this phrase and I really like it, spiritual schizophrenics. We're not to be spiritual schizophrenics, pledging our allegiance to God with our lips, but trampling Him with our lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Blessing God with the same mouth, this book's pretty clear about how it instructs it, that we curse man with. <laughs> oh, I know it ain't popular. I know people get uncomfortable and they start to squirm. You know what? I think I'm about to the place. I think I'd rather have 20 squirmers that'll listen to the Word of God and apply it to their lives than 2,000 people who just want something spoke to them to make them happy, to make them leave feeling better about themselves, to make them leave feeling like they're on their way to heaven. But I want to tell you something. This book cut me like a knife this week and if you'll let it, it'll cut you too. You can fool. Abraham Lincoln said this. You might have saw a post of this on Facebook last night. It came in my study yesterday. He said, you can fool some people all of the time and all of the people some of the time, but you cannot fool all of the people all of the time. And as I was growing up, my mama would often quote that to us. And then at the end, she would add to it, and you can't fool God none of the time. You see, those who profess to know God are to be distinguishable from the rest of the world, as distinguishable as light is from the darkness. We are to be different, especially as we see in verse 8 through 10 in our attitudes towards sin and as well as our actions against it. We are to be different. Do you know so often why the world doesn't want anything to do with the church? Because they'll say, they're no different than I am. They don't react any differently than I do. I had somebody else tell me this week, how that somebody, I'm not, I'm not talking about a church member, actually somebody in my family, and I 
only disclose that so that you'll know I'm telling you the truth. I'm not talking about a church member. Somebody in my family that's supposed to be living for the Lord, somebody had to tell me about how they dropped some really bad choice words when they got upset this week. What would you say to that preacher? I said, well, all I know to tell you is something ain't right. Something ain't right. If you talk the same way the world talks when you get aggravated and mad, something ain't right. Because we're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be distinguishable. Those who profess to know God are supposed to be distinguishable from the rest of the world. Before we go to the final verses, though, I don't want to skip over verse 7. This is John's correction. John was correcting when he wrote this. And in this verse, he writes in verse 7, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses who? Us from all sin. Now notice here the two results of consequences of walking in the light. The first is church fellowship, fellowship with other believers. Here we see that if we're rightly connected to God, that we will be rightly connected with others, those who also walk in the light. That's the first result. The second result is that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. A man by the name of Rudolph Boltman. I had never heard of him before yesterday until I found this on uh, as I was studying on the internet, uh, he was an infamous Bible critic. And actually, I think it was either Bible Hub or Bible Gateway that, that gave me this uh, link to this reference. And he said, uh, he claimed that this phrase right here about Jesus' blood was an artificial editorial addition and said that the content, listen, said that the content of this verse is disturbing. Do you know what that reminded me of? That reminded me of a church, and I won't call any names, that runs about 40,000 people now, one of the largest churches in North America, that years ago hired a growth uh, group to come in and tell them how to grow the church. And one of the first things that they told them was, you need to remove every sign and every indication of the blood from the church because people find it disturbing and people find it repulsive. That's exactly what this reminded me of. But I want to tell you something. That church growth group and Dr. Butman, or Boltman, whatever his name is, missed the whole point. He failed to see the logic of these verses. Here's the logical connection of thought. When one walks in light, such a light brings a penetrating revelation of who we are. That won't always be something you want to look at most of the time. It brings a penetrating revelation of who we are. And thus the only way forward for those of us who walk in this light is to cling. You can't see it this morning because there's stuff up here. But it's to cling to the cross. To see the sacrificial blood of Jesus to be our constant divine remedy. And to see also the consistency of the cross's benefits to be our greatest encouragement in leading a consistently holy life. So while Dr. Boltman found Jesus' blood disturbing, you and I should find it preserving preserving our fellowship with each other and with our Father in heaven. He says, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. So verses 6 through 7, that's the claim and the correction. Now I want us to, to move on to the second. Look, look at, with me at verses 8 and 9. He says, if we say we have no sin, here we go, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here the claim sounds quite modern and contemporary. 
I have no sin. I'm not a sinner. That's the gist of it. I realize that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Behold, old things are passed away and all things become new. But I want to tell you something. Here, what he's talking about is when you simply deny what we call original sin. That is the fact that, yes, maybe Jesus has saved you, but you were born with a sinful nature. There's something fundamentally wrong with the human nature that was brought about by Adam's sin. That's why Paul said, for by Adam we all sin. Somebody says, now wait a minute, Pastor, don't be pinning what Adam did on me. Well, guess what? Adam sinned and therefore he corrupted himself and even his seed. And then when he corrupted his seed, his seed was already corrupt when it entered woman. And and that seed was corrupt when it produced an offspring, which produced a corrupt offspring, which produced another corrupt offspring. So just because of what Adam did, whether you like it or not, you are part of the Adam's family. Da-da-da-da. That's all of us. Some of you kids won't get that because you don't have no clue what that is. But now, I love how John replies to this old but still alive and kicking heresy because that's what it is. He says that such people are untruthful and they're self-deceptive. Those who deny sin, those who say we're not sinners, they don't deceive anybody around them and they don't deceive God. The only person they deceive is themselves. And I think I could have sympathy for those who deny their own sinful nature maybe if I lived in a cave somewhere in some remote desert and therefore never interacted with a single human being. But since I live in and with people all around me, I cannot help but to see the everyday effects of everyone's sinful nature. That emergency that I got called to on Thursday afternoon was the effects of somebody's everyday sinful nature. And like every parent in the world, or maybe not every parent, I probably shouldn't say that, that's what's in my notes, but... As I say that, that's probably not quite true. But like most parents in the world, let me say it that way. I I taught my children when they were little not to hit, not to bite. If you don't, they'll kick them out of preschool, won't they, Jonna? Where's she at? (laughs) Not to lie. Taught them not to lie, not to steal, not to be selfish. But why did I do that? Why does... Hitting and biting and stealing and lying comes so natural to them. Is it just my kids? Is it just their messed up genes? Then I ask you, then why have I never had to spend one instant telling them how to love themselves? Uh huh. Not one time have I had to spend telling them how to love themselves. Not one time as a pastor do I usually have to spend much time telling somebody how to love themselves. But I battle daily to make people consider others better than themselves, the way the Word says for us to do. You see, those who deny that they have sin deny the very nose on their face. And the sad fact is we live in a world where people have Pinocchio-sized noses, but they just want to bury their head in the sand. But I've learned through both Scripture and experience that man, man, mankind, is both majestic and monstrous at the same time. We are indeed majestic because did you realize among all creation, we are the only ones that have a capacity for rational thought, for moral choice, 
for artistic creativity, to have social relationships, and the ability to outwardly express and openly express our worship. But we're also monstrous. Nobody's going to help me preach that. I said we're also monstrous. Jesus will help me preach that. In Mark chapter 7, verses 21 and 22, he said, For from within, out of the heart of who? Man. Come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. It's out of the heart, from the very root of our being, that sin sprouts up. Friedrich Nietzsche said, and I didn't know who he was either till yesterday, but I like this. He said, if God is dead, everything is permitted. And he was right. But if God is alive, and he's the light, then sin is not permitted. Yet surely it is committed. And this is why John is telling us next that the only answer to the denial of sin is the confession of sins. For if there is anything we are to say, it is not that we have no sin, but rather that we are full of sin. Now, old-time Pentecostals don't like to admit this. I've heard preachers get up and brag about how many days they've lived above sin. I've heard other people talk about how many years they've gone without sin. I don't know what they've found, but I haven't found it yet. Because we are full of sin. If you don't think so, then let us just, just tell us what's on your mind most of the time. The thoughts that run through it, we'll point out in the Word of God where you're wrong. Some of the places that you go, I know you won't help me do that. Some of the things that you do, just let us know about them. Those things that you like to keep hidden in the darkness, bring them out to light, baby. Let's talk about them and you'll realize we've all got sin in our lives. Everyone is sinful and therefore everybody sins. The person who denies this does so only by dismissing or relabeling your evil thoughts, your words, or your actions and deeds. But the person who is not living in denial comes to see the sense of John's solution, and that, that is to confess our sins. In the book, The Way of a Pilgrim, which is a classic work in Russian Orthodox spirituality, the author combines the publican's prayer, that's the tax collector's prayer in the Bible, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, with Paul's admonition to pray without ceasing. And he calls this combination collectively the Jesus prayer. That's what they call it. So someone who says this Jesus prayer prays over and over these words. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And now while such a prayer is called the Jesus prayer, in reality, in all reality, it's far from how Jesus taught us to pray when he taught us how to pray when he gave us the Lord's prayer. It resembles more of a pagan chant than it does a Christian prayer. However, this so-called Jesus prayer 
prayer does highlight the necessity of a life of continuous confession. Can I tell you this morning that the church would be a better place if we lived a life of continuous confession before God. I said the church would be a better place if we lived a life of continuous confession before God. And that's the point that John is making here. Our confession is not to be a once and for all. It's not to be that we come to an altar and we pray a sinner's prayer. That's the prayer that we pray the first time we come to Christ and then we don't ever ask for forgiveness again. No, 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 no. It's to be continuous. We're to confess our sins when we first come to Christ and we're to keep on confessing our sins as we continue to grow in Christ. Somebody say amen. Throughout Scripture, and I'm almost done, we find many warnings about the danger of concealing our sins and yet many promises of blessing if we confess them. And here in verse 9, we're reminded of the blessing that confession brings. Confession to God of our specific sins, our wrong thoughts, our words, our actions, including the good which we omit as well as the evil which we do, will bring forgiveness and cleansing. Look at what verse 9 said. This is a wonderful verse to memorize if you've never memorized it. Post it in your brain. Pin it in your heart. He said, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Abraham Lincoln, he got two plugs today, once said, it is the duty of nations as well as men to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon. And indeed, genuine repentance or confession does lead to mercy and pardon or to forgiveness and cleansing as John words it, because God is truly faithful and just. He's faithful to forgive us because he's promised to do so. And he's just because his son died for our sins. So one last time, again, on the basis of Jesus' blood, God forgives. That is, he cancels our debt and he brings restoration. And God cleanses. That is, he removes the stain of sin, making us holy and renewing our fellowship with him. And I'm going to end with verse 10. Here he deals with one final false claim. He says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him, who? God, a liar. And his word is not in us. Once a woman came to Charles Wesley, he was the great hymn writer, and asked him to pray for her. She confessed to him, she said, I'm a great sinner, and I'm a Christian, but I sometimes fail so dreadfully. Please pray for me. Wesley looked at her and sternly replied, yes, madam. I will pray for you, for you truly are a great sinner. Well, taken back by Wesley's demeanor and straightforward reply, she answered, What do you mean? I have never done anything very wrong. Think about that. That's exactly where we are today. I've never done anything very wrong. In verse 10, John's dealing with this type of person. They may admit that they're a sinner by nature, but they'll never admit They're a sinner by deed or by action. I'm a sinner, but I haven't done anything very wrong. I'm a sinner, but I haven't ever sinned. That's the gist of this this false claim. And while we might laugh at that Wesley story, the attitudes towards sin, it's, it's no laughing matter. In fact, most commentators, and I read a lot of commentary yesterday, agree. This third false claim is the most serious of all. To claim that we have not sinned or to claim that we don't sin now is a serious mistake. 
In Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 20, we find one of the, those really poignant Proverbs. It says, this is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. Now, that's not just the adulteress today. That's almost every unbeliever in our culture. From the White House to death row, we become experts in eating from the forbidden tree, turning around and wiping our mouths, and then looking at the people and saying, I've done nothing wrong. I have not sinned. What do I need to confess? But God's word tells us here that God despises such denial. Why? Because to say that you've never sinned and to say that you don't sin now is to call God a liar. You might be willing to do that, but I'm not. To say that we have never sinned is to call God a liar. Why is it to make him a liar, Pastor? Well, because God makes the opposite claim. He claims in Romans 3 and 23, all have sinned. And then again, he claims in Ecclesiastes 7 and 20, listen at this. I read this verse yesterday. I don't know if I've ever read it in my life. I love it. Ecclesiastes 7 and 20, write it down. It says, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. That's what it says. Never had read that one before that I know of. I mean, I've read through the Bible, but I didn't catch it the first time. So who is right and who is wrong? Who's doing the lying? It is the man who claims he has never sinned, or is it God who claims that we have all sinned? Well, there's only one right answer, and I think Romans 3 and 4 puts it well in perspective. Romans 3 and 4, Paul said, Let God be true, and every man a liar, as they come to the music this morning. Let God be true, and every man a liar. It was said that a man who claimed to be without sin once confronted Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon was a great, famous Baptist preacher and intrigued the the preacher. Now listen to this story. Don't pay attention to them. Intrigued by the fact that this man claimed to be without sin, Spurgeon invited this man home for dinner. And he gave him an opportunity to state his case and to explain how he was without sin. And after hearing all of his claims through, Spurgeon arose from the chair and he simply picked up a glass of water and he slung it into the man's face. And immediately and understandably, this perfect man began to show his imperfections, causing a scene and allowing his anger and his language to cross the line of courtesy. To which Spurgeon replied, Ah, you see, the old man within is not dead as you claim. He had simply went to sleep and I've revived him with but a glass of water. Think about that. I don't know how accurate that story is, but it does help to illustrate the point. Because I do think sometimes in this thing called the church, we have a few perfect men, perfect women, perfect children who attend church every Sunday. But you need a perfectly good splash of water to awaken your imperfections. For you see, no one in the kingdom of God on earth has been so transformed by God that they've reached this level of spiritual maturity that excludes the need for ongoing forgiveness. Let me say that again. 
No one in the kingdom of God here on this earth has been so transformed by God that they've reached a level of spiritual maturity that excludes their need for ongoing forgiveness. No one has fully surrendered or reached sinless perfection. You may do good a lot of the time, but you're still daily. I'm still daily in need of God's grace and His constant forgiveness. God is light. Say that with me. God is light. Stand with me all over the house. God is light. That's the message that John has for us this morning. And if we are to walk in the light as we are called to do, the first step is to recognize the darkness within us and to have a proper self-assessment and a proper attitude towards sin. We are not to say we have no sin, nor are we to claim we have not sinned. No, we're here to admit that we have sinned and we still sin and we're to confess these sins so that we can receive the benefits of the blood of Jesus Christ.